You're listening to the N2K Space Network. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. What's the big deal about being the first to get to orbit with a methane-powered rocket? Well, quite a bit, actually. For one thing, methane is a lot cheaper than more traditional rocket fuels, but it is harder to work with. Making methane in rocketry work has been an engineering challenge many nations and companies have been racing to conquer. And yesterday, we officially got our winner, Land Space's Zhu Chui Tu. Today is July 12th, 2023. I'm Maria Varmazis, and this is T Minus. Land space is the first ever to orbit with methane. Much ado about an explosion at Blue. Hanwha Systems enters the satellite internet game. Mothballs for Janus. And I'm speaking today with Tom Patterson, Managing Director at Accenture, on advancements in post-quantum cryptography for multi-orbit satellite communications. And after my chat with Tom, we're doing something a little special for today's episode. It's the one-year anniversary of the first images from the James Webb Space Telescope, after all. So in honor of this Webiversary, I'm chatting with NASA astronomer Carl Gordon, where he'll guide us through the new web image that NASA released today. Definitely don't miss it. Now let's start off with our Intel briefing for today. Now, as I mentioned at the top of the show, Landspace, a private commercial space company based in China, holds the title for first to orbit with a methane-powered rocket. The medium-launch vehicle Zhuchui-2, which is powered by four methalox or methane-liquid-oxygen engines, launched yesterday from the Zhuchuan Space Launch Center, successfully making it to orbit on what was Landspace's second orbital attempt. Their first attempt was unsuccessful last December. Many companies have been trying to crack the methalox nut. Certainly, SpaceX has, as has Relativity Space, which made an orbital flight attempt with its successful Terran 1 launch earlier this year, but it didn't make it to orbit, unfortunately. Now, traditional rocket fuels aren't just terrible for the environment, they're bad for the wallet, too. Hugely expensive. And as companies are trying to continually drive the price of launches down while getting rocket reusability up, 
Getting cheaper propellant to work for the rocket presents massive cost savings. Now, methane is a natural gas. I'm not saying it's great for the environment, but it's comparatively better, more so than, than traditional options anyway. And in terms of a balance sheet, it is a lot cheaper. Landspace's website says using Methalox propellant presents for them a 50 to 90% cost savings. No wonder companies are racing to make it work for them. In any case, a hearty congratulations to Landspace and the Zhuchui 2 for this historic first and making it happen with Methalox. And also out of China today, there's news that as the nation builds out lunar mission plans, they're adding a crude two-rocket moon landing to their ambitions. The official announcement is that China plans on sending two simultaneous missions to the moon by 2030, and the idea is that this dual-rocket approach will circumvent the challenges of getting enough power to send a spacecraft to the moon with both humans and lunar landing gear on board at the same time. The proposed approach here is to send the lunar lander down first and humans afterward in two separate but coordinated rides. No super heavy lift needed, perhaps. It's a fascinating proposed approach, to be sure, and one we're definitely going to be keeping an eye on. And speaking of keeping an eye on things, if you've been keeping an eye on the headline news, you've probably heard a little bit about this one already. But in case you haven't heard, news is making the rounds that in late June, about 10 seconds into engine testing, a Blue Origin BE-4 rocket engine exploded. Now, nobody was hurt and Blue Origin confirmed to CNBC that they've figured out a proximate cause. And according to people who've seen a video of the explosion, it not only decimated the engine being tested, but it also did quite a number on the test infrastructure as well. That engine, if it hadn't had a rapid unscheduled disassembly, was going to finish testing this month and then be part of ULA's second Vulcan rocket launch. So that's not happening anymore, clearly. But Blue Origin says they're going to stay on schedule for engine delivery commitments this year. And ULA seems like they're not sweating it either, apparently, telling CNBC that they're not concerned about the BE-4 engines already on its upcoming Vulcan CERT-1 mission, saying both onboard engines successfully passed acceptance testing. No, it's not great when something blows up, but that is testing for you. Better in testing than on the launch pad, that's for sure. Now let's take a look at new deals in space. Marine enforcement firm Ocean Mind has extended its agreement with Spire Global for automatic identification system vessel tracking data to identify suspected illegal fishing activities. Ocean Mind's monitoring supports enforcement officials, seafood buyers, and NGOs by ensuring fishing compliance. And with Spire's data, has verified over $600 million worth of tuna imports globally. Of note, this update comes one week after Hawkeye 360 announced a contract with the government of Australia to provide a similar service near the Pacific Islands. Hanwha Systems, the Defense and Communication Technology Unit of the Hanwha Group, has obtained a government license to operate as a satellite internet service provider. The Hanwha Group is one of the massive South Korean jaebols, which is a type of large family-owned conglomerate that's characteristic of the South Korean economy, with diversified operations across sectors like defense, telecom, manufacturing, finance, and energy. The Seoul-based company will provide high-speed internet service using low-Earth orbit satellites from OneWeb, in which it holds an 8.8% stake. 
With target customers in business, government organizations, and the military, Hanwha also plans to serve sectors such as aviation, shipping, automotive, and urban air mobility. The UK Space Agency has announced a record £20 million investment for the development of future telecommunication technologies. The funds will provide dedicated connectivity for emergency services and bring internet access to rural areas through drones or high-altitude platforms. The initiative forms part of the European Space Agency's Advanced Research and Telecommunications Services Program, underscoring the UK's commitment to space-based telecommunications and continued partnership with the EU after Brexit. The investment also supports the country's fast-growing satellite communications industry. NASA has officially mothballed the Janus mission due to a delayed launch and budgetary constraints after spending nearly $50 million on its development. Now, Janus was originally scheduled to study binary asteroids along with the Psyche spacecraft, but a launch delay caused by software testing issues on Psyche changed the position of Janus's target asteroids, making them unreachable. NASA considered repurposing Janus for other missions, like the asteroid Apophis, but dropped the project due to budget and priority constraints in light of the Mars Sample Return and Europa Clipper missions. The spacecraft are set for long-term storage. And as always, be sure to check out additional stories we think you'll find interesting in the selected reading section of our show notes. It's space.n2k.com. And that wraps it up for our Intel briefing for today. Coming up next is my chat with Tom Patterson of Accenture. And then afterward, for the first year anniversary of the first web images, I'm speaking with NASA astronomer Carl Gordon. And hey, T-Minus crew, if you find this podcast useful, please do us a favor and share a five-star rating and a short review in your favorite podcast app. It will help other space professionals like you to find the show and join the T-Minus crew. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Now, today I'm speaking with Tom Patterson, who is the managing director at Accenture, working in their Emerging Technology Security Group. He is the company's global lead for quantum and space security, and we're talking about an interesting experiment that the company recently did. Now, here's the headline. Multi-orbit communications link showcasing post-quantum crypto. Now, there's a lot there. So, Tom, can you take that apart a bit and explain what this experiment is about and why it was done? It is really interesting, and uh, and there is a lot packed <laughs> Packed into that uh, that one experiment, but uh, so the, the real issue around uh, what we call quantum security around 2015, it's jumped off of paper and into practice. 
And so we started to have our first quantum machines, not just being theorized, but being built. Very small. They only lasted for less than a second, but they worked. And it proved out the math that had been there around this concept of quantum physics. And that really is what started this concept of, well, that's going to bring lots of goodness into the world. It can do all sorts of new things. But with all sorts of new technology, there's always people like myself that look at, well, what what else is going to come with that? And What's the bad part? <laughs> so it turns out that once these quantum computers get here, and they're, they're years away, not decades away or, or you know, lifetimes away anymore, they're, they're evolving very rapidly. So we know that they're coming. And once they get to a certain size, they're going to be able to do something called factoring. And again, that sounds boring. It sounds math-related. It sounds like, oh, that's for somebody else to care about. But the problem is that all of our public key encryption is based on a simple assumption that anybody can multiply two prime numbers together and get a big prime number. That's easy to do. You can do it on a calculator. You can do it on your your watch. Any kind of a computer can do it. And so that's how our security is, is built now. We just assume that anybody can multiply two together, but nobody's got a big enough computer to take that new big number and figure out what the two factors were. What are the two numbers that were used to multiply together? And it's that shared secret that is what runs all the public key encryption that we use. So that's what runs our banking sector. It's what defends our governments and our militaries. All of our secrets, what, what, what you're listening to today with the HTTPS, all of that is built on this simple concept that we're never going to be able to build a big enough supercomputer to figure out how to reverse and factor that big prime number. Comes along, a, a quantum computer can do it in less than a second. So since we know that's coming, we need to come up with a new way to encrypt, a new way to keep our secrets secret. It doesn't require quantum physics. It just requires different math. Since we know this is how quantum computers will be able to break down a factor, we need a new way. So about 10 years ago, NIST started a global campaign to come up with the smartest mathematicians in the world to come up with a new way. And we are this now in, in 2023, we're to the point where there's a, a brilliant candidate algorithms uh, out there, a little set of candidate algorithms out there. They use a concept called lattice instead of factoring, not susceptible to any kind of a quantum computer. So we should be good for another while. And so that, that race is happening now uh, to get this new concept what we call crypto agility, put into the most important critical infrastructure components of the world. And one of those is space. And space has been overlooked for a long time from a security perspective because it was always one government talking to one satellite or one handful of satellites, and that's all we had. You know, right now we're about 5,000 satellites globally you know, circling the Earth, artificial satellites circling the Earth which is a big number, and it, and it took us decades to get to that number. Within 10 years, we'll have over 100,000 satellites. And most of these are going to be from small private companies, not giant governments. And we need a way to protect them from these coming attacks. So if you look forward, it's going to take a few more years for the quantum computers to get here, and it's going to take a few more years to get to all these new 100,000 satellites up there. They're going to arrive at about the same time. So we want them to arrive in a way that's defensible. And that's what Accept is really focused on. We have a, a group that is chartered to put cyber into space. And uh, there's the, the term cyberspace has been bandied around a lot, but it doesn't generally talk about space. So we are putting cyber into space 
and uh, are dedicated to go do that. And so the first uh, experiment we did with post-quantum security was back in March. We did it with a great company called QSecure, which builds, uh, we think, a, a really great, you know, easy-to-use implementation of crypto agility. And this is where today, if there's a problem, you rotate the cryptographic key. So if someone stole your key, you, you put pop in a new one. We know how to do that. That happens, you know, millions of times a day uh, all over the world. We know how to rotate keys. It's the algorithm that stays the same day in and day out. With crypto agility, we're now able to rotate the algorithms as easily as we can rotate the keys. And that's a new concept for people. Usually you, you put it in, you bake it in, and you forget about it. But with quantum computers coming and all these different kinds of attacks and all these clever people and well-funded adversaries, we can't really rely on whatever we put in today being perfect for tomorrow. So we need the ability to adapt. And that's especially true when you talk about space, when you're going to build a satellite launch a satellite on a rocket, shoot it up into the space, and then leave it alone and never be able to go send a repairman. And so because of that, we need to make sure we get this right. So we demonstrated, along with QSecure, the concept of putting crypto agility into space, both at the low Earth orbit, which is where the bulk of these satellites will be, and what's called geosynchronous orbit, which is 22,000 plus miles up that can sort of just hover over a location for, the, for its whole point. It rotates as the Earth rotates. And so with, with both of those um, satellites, uh, kinds of satellites and, and orbits, it was really important to try and use crypto agility in all of space. And so what we did was we sent an encrypted message up, bounced it off an existing low Earth orbit communication satellite, and we then simulated a quantum attack. We just said, okay, let's flash forward a couple of years. There is a quantum computer that will be able to decrypt that message that you just sent. And we don't want that. It could be a, a war message or it could be a, 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 you know, a secret you know, you know, business message. And so we then said, okay, simulate this attack. Or the, this capabilities of an attack is here. So it then called up to the geosynchronous satellite above it and said, Push me a new algorithm that's crypto that's that's secure against this type of attack we just sensed. And it pushed down one of these new NIST algorithms, pushed it in, rotated the keys, rotated the algorithm, and then the message went on its way from one Accenture outpost in one part of the US to another Accenture outpost in another part of the US with no no skip. Not, nothing was missed. And this was done in low Earth orbit and in, in geosynchronous orbit. And we did it for two reasons. One, this is going to be really important to have this capability in space, but also to demonstrate to those on Earth that haven't yet adopted crypto agility that however complex you think your enterprise is, you know, it's it's not as hard as space is hard. You know, it, it is, we say it all the time. <laughs> it has a lot of really absolutely unique difficulties that we have to overcome in space. And so we were able to push crypto agility into space and make it work seamlessly from one ground station to another. Um, we can do this and are doing this uh, with, with banks and with governments and transportation companies, manufacturing companies, all these groups on Earth that also really need the same kind of defense. I was wondering about the multi-orbit aspect of this, because that's the part where maybe go, that's so cool. Why multi-orbit? And you just explained it really well. So thank you. That was really neat. Yeah. Yeah, so, the, you know, low Earth orbit is, is really cool and it's going to change our world. The, the, the big push in space now is called SAT to cell. Uh, so the next generation of cell phones will automatically be able to route your signal off of a low Earth orbit satellite. And that is because they're close enough 
where you don't need a giant satellite dish to communicate with them. You can do it with an antenna and a chip. And so because of that, that low power capability, it's going to really open up and, and change our world. And we want to make sure that, that there's a security system for those LEO sats, what we call LEO, LEO low Earth orbit satellites, uh, need to the same kind of security systems in space as we all enjoy here in the ground. That's fantastic. And the resilience against data harvesting, that's also the other part that I hear about so much where people are worried about all that data being gobbled up to be decrypted later. And it sounds like in this case, that threat essentially is neutralized or mitigated at least. It's neutralized. Uh, you know, the, the, there will probably be more threats in, in the future that uh, that we uh, don't know about. And that's why we like this concept at, at Accenture of pushing crypto agility as opposed to just the next algorithm. Um, and so you make this change once and then you don't have to worry about this problem going forward. But steal now, decrypt later, absolutely a problem you know, with with groups, it's kind of easy to steal encrypted data because we don't we, we don't guard it as much. You know, we guard our, our open secrets, but we don't guard our encrypted data because we trust the encryption. And so we're in governments first, and now in in all sorts of industries that have intellectual property or have embarrassing you know things that they wouldn't want to get out or their secret formula to their whatever. All of those kinds of secrets are just being, I say just, but they're being encrypted well by today's standards with just encryption. And that's what's getting stolen today. Yeah, and I'm curious, any any thoughts around um, timeline for when we see more systems being sort of resilient in this way? Because as you said, it's it's years, not decades. I'm, I'm always curious to get people's take on how many years, like, are we talking a decade or <laughs> how imminent are we talking here? Well, you know, here's here's what I tell people. And this is the first question I get from boards of directors, members, you know, every time. And it doesn't matter what sector, what, what government, what what country I'm in. Uh, it's always the same as, as when, you know, what's the day. And there's a couple of fallacies with that question. Now, I mean, it, it doesn't take uh, magic in order to defend against this. It's not like, um, you know, we're jumping up and down and saying there's this new threat. And there's nothing you can do about it. There's a sane and safe response. Uh, the trick is to understand two things. One, the threat is real and it affects you. And two, it does take a long time to change over your encryption. So you need to start early. If you do it before that headline, it's a, it's a, you pop it into your five-year plan and it's a, a well-managed, organized, efficient, cost-effective way that you just defend yourself as, as your fiduciary responsibility. If you wait for that headline to appear and then you call down to your team, uh, you're going to be in scramble mode, and that's always you know less optimal, suboptimal. To say the least, yeah. <laughs> not, not a situation anyone enjoys being in, though. Tom, thank you so much. This was a fascinating conversation. I learned a ton. And uh, as I said at the beginning, quantum is something that's hard for me to wrap my brain around, but you explained it so well that I, I feel like I, I understood some of that <laughs> That's a big win in my books. Thank you so much. Don't be put off by what uh, what Einstein said in the 60s, that it was spooky. It's just scared too many people for too long. Uh, it is, this makes sense. You can wrap your head around it and you can take an action. So I was really happy to be here with you today and, and cover a lot, of, a lot of ground. There's a lot more coming. We'll be right back. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. 
Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and Zero Trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their SASE journey, visit netskope.com. Welcome back. Now, one year ago today, the world was treated to the fantastic first images from NASA's largest and most powerful telescope, the James Webb Space Telescope. So here it is. Can you walk us through the final image reveal? <laughs> Absolutely. Here we go. Oh, damn. Oh, wow. Wow. That sound, that is something I recorded on my phone a year ago today when I was in a room filled to the brim with NASA scientists, engineers, and staff at NASA Goddard. We were all seeing the first images from Webb together, the pinnacle of years and years of hard work, and that reaction was specifically to everyone seeing the colorful, powerful, dramatic, cosmic cliffs in the Carina Nebula, undoubtedly the most famous image of the first Webb images. It's been everywhere since it came out. I know I used it as a desktop background for months. Anyway, it was truly an honor to be at Goddard to see that image for the first time alongside the many, many people who worked to make it happen. And today, in honor of the one-year anniversary of Webb's first images, NASA has released yet another phenomenal new image from Webb. Earlier today, I spoke with NASA astronomer Carl Gordon about this image and what's going on with Webb in general. What are we looking at when we see this image? So we're looking at a star-forming region in Ophiuchus that's uh, astronomically nearby at 400 light-years away. Oh. And so this is uh, a region of interstellar matter, the cloud of interstellar uh, gas and dust that's forming stars very, you know, right now. And we see that both on the bottom. You actually can see the interstellar matter all lit up in this kind of orange and yellow from this one star that's very bright. And then in the upper region, you can see more of these red filamentary structures. And that's actually material being expelled by the forming stars. And there's maybe 50 stars that we can see that are forming, and they're similar masses to our own sun. So this is a possible view of how our sun may have formed. Uh. Hardly see these because we're in the infrared. Webb observes the infrared, so we can see through the dust. Dust is actually something that gets gets in our way. It's actually my area of study, but it gets in our way. But now, in, because we've moved to the infrared, we can actually see deeper in because the effects of dust are less in the infrared. Okay, so a year of, of a fantastic imagery data. Do you have a favorite? Like, is that like asking if you have a favorite child? <laughs> yes, it is asking like I have a favorite child. Um, I have a lot of them that I've really enjoyed seeing. Picking favorites is hard. I can pick a favorite from my, you know, research area, which is interstellar dust. That's the solid matter that's that we're, that's in the interstellar medium, kind of tiny grains of sand is the way I describe it. And so the one I'm very excited about is actually measurements in Orion. Um, and so this is uh, one of those first-year programs, and there's imaging of, of the Orion uh, bar region, but also spectroscopy. So one of the really exciting things for Webb can do is very nice mid-infrared spectroscopy, near-infrared spectroscopy, 
and, and in fact, it's, it's something called an integral field unit, which makes little images at each wavelength. And so we actually can make not only these beautiful images from the imagers, but we can also make much more detailed information um, at many wavelengths, at many colors. And so we can learn a lot more about the physics of the interstellar matter by looking at, you know, the particular signatures or the fingerprints of different atoms. So we can learn about how much is there, the temperature, you know, is there argon, is there hydrogen, all that stuff. And as well in the interstellar dust, there are also signatures of carbonaceous versus silicate dust. And we can learn a lot about the detailed composition from looking at those. And so we're working hard on all this, right? We've, we haven't had the data for very long. A year is not very long when you start thinking about research. And so we're starting to really understand the science. And I think this is true for pretty much all the observations with JWST. If we only had a year's worth of JWST data or web data, we'd still be working on it 10 years from now. And we're going to get 10 or 20 years of JWST data. So you can imagine how much information is in there and how long it will take us to understand it all. It feels like every other day there's a new headline that that JWST has revealed some new incredible thing. And it's just like, it's mind-boggling to think that's going to be just for a long time, all these new things. Yeah, absolutely. Such an exciting time to be in. I feel almost sacrilegious asking about other telescopes in the context of JWST, but I am fascinated to learn about how Webb works in tandem with existing telescopes and also like when Nancy Grace Roman comes on board, how Webb is going to work with her. So can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, Webb observes in the infrared, right, which we feel is heat, but then it's very complementary to Hubble, which is one of our other, one of the other big NASA observatories, which Hubble. is in, in the optical. <laughs> Who doesn't? Yeah, right. I use Hubble as well, right? I, I don't discriminate. Um, so <laughs> Hubble is awesome. It works in the optical. It also works in the UV, which we can't see either with our eyes, but you feel a sunburn if you go outside too often, right? right. And so that's, those are two of the missions. There's also the Spitzer Observatory that, used, that, that, that is no longer functional, but we still have lots of great data in the far infrared. Lots of other observatories, X-ray, ground-based. So we really use all these things together because they tell us different things about what we're observing. And so it's not sacrilege. We, you know, as astronomers, we'll use every tool we've got in the toolkit. Um, and Nancy Grace Roman Telescope is coming along. Very exciting. It's Hubble size, so it'll have Hubble resolution, but it'll be able to take these huge panoramas, right? So we can take much bigger images. And so we can learn a lot more. Both Hubble and uh, Webb are much more focused observatories, and they, you can, I mean, they beautiful pictures, they look big, they are big, but Roman will be huge in comparison to that. And so we'll be able to really survey m- much larger regions. And so if you put those together, we'll be able to find new things to look at for Hubble and Webb, right? And so, and, and so I expect we'll be doing a lot of that when Roman launches. I'm very excited about Roman as well, and it's coming relatively soon, given how much data we already have. Carl, thank you so much for walking me through it. What a wonderful first year for Webb, and I can't wait to see what other things it'll uncover. That's it for T-minus for July 12th, 2023. For additional resources from today's report, check out our show notes at space.n2k.com. We'd love to know what you think of our podcast. You can email us at space at n2k.com or submit the survey in the show notes. Your feedback ensures we deliver the information that keeps you a step ahead in the rapidly changing space industry. N2K Strategic Workforce Intelligence optimizes the value of your biggest investment, your people. 
We make you smarter about your team while making your team smarter. This episode was produced by Alice Carruth. Mixing by Elliot Peltzman and Trey Hester with original music and sound design by Elliot Peltzman. Our executive producer is Brandon Karp. Our chief intelligence officer is Eric Tillman. And I'm Maria Varmazis. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. T-minus. And now a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com.